Good morning. Our study guide for Lesson 13 in this passage, Isaiah 40 through 4120, mentions the huge transition that takes place between the previous 39 chapters of Isaiah and those of 40 forward. And they are like moving from the Old Testament to the New, from the storm clouds to the sunshine. A totally different atmosphere pervades the words of Isaiah to God's people. The first word of chapter 40 gives us the theme of the rest of the book, the word comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. But what we want to be clear about is what the word comfort does not mean. It does not mean coddle. It can mean alleviation of distress, certainly, but it literally means to be with strength. Calm is with and forte is strength. The Hebrew for this word stresses consolation. And this is the Lord's consolation for his people, to put strength into our hearts and souls. The Lord is saying, strengthen my people, fill them with fortitude, with courage. And that's how the Holy Spirit transformed those first Christian disciples so that they had courage to proclaim Christ and to live and die for him. And it is how he speaks transformation into us. And, you know, we need the first 39 chapters of Isaiah in order to better understand how God desires to move us from lamentations, the book of, literally, to celebration. And I believe Isaiah, without realizing it, has all along been teaching the way of the cross. The cross always precedes new life and resurrection. It's the way a holy God provides for and teaches an unruly people about emptying themselves of all of himself in order to bring about our transformation. But while at the same time giving us understanding of how he casts out fear and that we are uh, cast out fear so that we are able to face whatever it is we have to face until he calls us home. And it is how he consoles us so that we know fully that we are loved and forgiven and may be able to speak this truth to others as Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. And why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And this comfort is to be doubled up on. So the first 39 chapters were given to teach and to humble the people of God. The remaining chapters of Isaiah are focused on building his people up. The first 39 chapters are concerned with God's righteousness and how his people's errant ways had to be corrected or punished. Our God is a holy God. And from 40 on, God's righteousness is all about how he must save his people. He is also always a merciful, loving God. God's righteousness encompasses both. So this change of subject from condemnation to comfort, from punishment to pardon, from justice to mercy, from war to peace, 
all of which are reflected in Isaiah's vocabulary, style, and grammar, has caused some to even doubt Isaiah's authorship of the entire book. And for not only that reason, there is also a difference in historical context. As our study guide points out, in Isaiah 1-39, through the great enemy is Assyria, who took the northern ten tribes of Israel into exile. But in 40 on, the great enemy is Babylon, who carried off to exile the southern kingdom of tribes Judah and Benjamin. And what worries some people is that Isaiah wasn't even alive then. In fact, what Isaiah is prophesying and preaching in the remainder of our study took place 150 years later than what was recorded in the first 39 chapters. Isaiah is speaking now to a future people he foresees, whose hopes have been crushed during their exile in Babylon. And here, unlike other prophets, Isaiah is not only just predicting something that was going to happen in a future day, but he's actually preaching to it, to a congregation not yet born. It's like God's love message in a bottle for a particular people but really for any of his who are encountering affliction. His words have been preserved by the grace of God for the people of God, and that includes us. So what has happened during those 150 years? We'll just have a little run-through quickly. Assyria was defeated and Jerusalem was saved. Good King Hezekiah died and his evil son Manasseh came to the throne and set back up all the pagan altars that his father had taken down. And then it is believed he even had Isaiah executed, sawn asunder as Hebrews 11.37 puts it. For the evil of that, Manasseh was marched off to Assyria with a hook in his nose. But Manasseh humbled himself and repented and God brought him back to Jerusalem. But the people in Judah, under later disobedient kings, continued to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you can read about it in 2 Chronicles 33 forward. Then a boy king came to the throne named Josiah. And a scroll of the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, was found in the temple. And Josiah wanted to put things right with Yahweh, so he began to make reforms. And Josiah was helped in this by another teenager, the prophet Jeremiah. But Jeremiah saw that in spite of Josiah's desire to follow the Lord, the people weren't really interested in reform. So Jeremiah, sometimes known as the gloomy prophet, preached gloomy things to the people about what would come to them if they didn't turn back to God. And it came to pass. In 607 B.C., a new nation sprang up, Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, which quickly finished off Assyria, And then after a few more evil kings had sat on the throne in Judah, they besieged Jerusalem in 598 B.C., just as the Lord through Isaiah had promised Hezekiah. The Babylonians took away to their country all influential and skilled persons, including the prophet Ezekiel. Jeremiah's continual warnings to those few people left behind went unheeded, So soon the Babylonians returned and raised Jerusalem to the ground. Jeremiah fled with a small number of Jews to Egypt, and not one Jew was left in Jerusalem. And you can read about that in the prophet book, in the book of Jeremiah. So here we are in Isaiah 41, and the long deceased Isaiah is leaving 
the suffering exiles in Babylon a word from the Lord, and it is comfort. The Jews in Babylon had been suffering for 38 years and had even been told they could no longer worship their God as they had at first been allowed to. And this was something they now very much wanted to do. They wanted to worship their Lord. And just as Donna pointed out last time about Hezekiah, the people were now totally fixed on their God. And because of their fervent desire to now worship him in spirit and in truth, God, Isaiah says, is going to rescue them. However, just before we take that up, let's just briefly first address that belief by some that Isaiah could not have written this entire book, that an unnamed person actually wrote the rest of the book, beginning with chapter 40. Other than the fact that we know our God can set up predictive prophecy any way he wishes, a very interesting discovery in 1947 in the Judean desert that became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls has helped to challenge this thought. Because here a scroll of all 66 chapters, the entire book of Isaiah, was found intact dating back to 125 B.C. and attributed to one author. Isaiah. This manuscript is a thousand years older than any other Hebrew manuscripts of Isaiah previously known. And so the scroll takes us back much closer to the time when Isaiah actually lived. Also, the New Testament treats Isaiah as a unity. For instance, in John 12, 38 to 41, both parts of Isaiah are quoted and attributed to him. Isaiah 6, 9-10, and Isaiah 53, 1. But that's enough of that. Now go to our text. Thought you'd never get there, did you? Okay. So if you'd please open to chapter 40 and sort of follow along with me a bit. In verses 1 through 11, we find several voices crying in the darkness of the suffering of God's people. The voices begin with a whisper and they end with a shout. To whom the voices belong is not given, but they carry God's word to his people in order to lift them up, to comfort them with the words that their hard service of enduring the punishment of captivity is over. Their sins have been forgiven. And to It's also to give them strength for the future. The next voice has in view the preparation of a processional highway for a monarch, the coming of the Lord, the king, to Jerusalem. The people are told to get ready and make the way straight. The king is coming. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And as you probably know, these very words were put into the mouth of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 1 to 8, at the beginning of the New Testament, when he was declaring that repentance is necessary to prepare the way for Christ. The message is we are to make the pathway into our hearts broad and smooth. The king is coming. Prepare the way so that he can come straight in. And then the glory of God will be revealed. Verse 5, all mankind together will see it. 
all the nations would see Israel's deliverance. And we know from the book of Revelation and other parts of scripture that the glory of God will be supremely revealed at the return of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the redemption and resurrection of all who call on his name. The next voice in verses 6 to 8 cries out that the power of Babylon and the plans of all nations not under God will vanish, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You'll probably notice that flowers are mentioned several times. The terrain of Babylon is very flat and dry, and the people greatly depended on the flooding of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers for water. So they had built many dikes and canals, and they had also built huge terraces everywhere from which were hung cascading gorgeous flowers. And these became known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon once listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in the 60s, uh, before most of you hadn't been born, I actually visited the site in Iraq where these terraces are believed to have once stood. And there were no flowers there then, nor are there now. The flowers fall, says the Lord, but my word stands forever. And Isaiah means for the people of God to find assurance here. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, the word that stands forever. And then Peter quotes from Isaiah 46 and 7. The last voice in verses 9 to 11 calls upon Jerusalem when it is reestablished to testify to the whole district of Judah that the sovereign Lord has conquered and comes with both strength and gentleness. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He will come with power to deal with Babylon, but he will gently lead, even carry, his people home like a shepherd. So as people were, as we are today, to shout out our testimony. Here is the good shepherd. Here is our God. And we are to lift our voices. The balance of the verses of chapter 40, beginning with verse 12, make me want to ask myself and also you, do we have a big enough view of God? And I was reminded of a little story that I heard a pastor tell once of a little boy and his father. And the little boy said to his father, Daddy, where is God? And his father said, well, God is everywhere. And the little boy says, is he out in the garden? The father said, well, yes, because he's everywhere. He's out there. Is he in the room with us? Yes, he's right here in the room with us. Is he in this little jar that I'm holding? And the father says, well, yes, he would be because he's everywhere. And the little boy takes the cat and goes, got him. (laughs) Now, that is not a perspective we want to encourage. But we can guard against it ourselves in some form or another. So instead of that, uh, David in Psalm 34.3 says, Glorify or magnify the Lord with me 
and let us exalt his name together. Isaiah in our passage here is trying to get the people to magnify their God, to look up and see God as much bigger than their troubles. It's all about the Lord's omnipotence. Who has measured all these things? The waters, the heavens, the earth, the mountains. And who instructed him in all these things? Who has understood God's mind, it asks. We can't even understand Einstein's or Stephen Hawkins's mind. Who, <laughs> at least I can't. I don't know if anybody else here can. Who wants an answer to why the universe exists responded, if we find the answer to that, this is Stephen Hawkins, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then we would know the mind of God. Well, Stephen Hawkins did not believe in God, nor for all his knowledge did he know why the universe exists. He did not know, as we do, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we know why he did it. He did it out of love. In contrast, Isaiah says, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, verse 15. And there are no sacrifices numerous enough to do justice to the greatness of God, verse 16. So how utterly foolish it is to try and portray God with an image, verse 18. I heard a pastor once say, as soon as you make an idol, you cut God down to size. Verse 21, do you not know, have you not heard, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. Verses 21 and following switch from God's mind to his might, to his acts. Isaiah chastises the people for forgetting what they had been taught about God. He brings princes to naught, verse 23. In other words, God is plenty bigger and mightier than any problems we are facing. God is in charge of history. Verse 25 asks, to whom can you compare God? So then, verse 26, lift up your eyes. Do not complain and say, my cause is disregarded by my God, verse 27. Because that's what the exiles thought. They believed in God and worshipped him, but thought he was no longer really interested in him. They, in them. That kind of thinking actually challenges God's character because our God is a God of love. God has a covenantal relationship with his people. We remember Genesis 28:15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. So verses 28 and 29 are, God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. That is how he comforts them. God himself will not grow tired or worry, weary as we do. And really as does all power of a natural kind. Everything wears down at some point. Even the stars of which our sun is one. But God does not. So God's message to those who hope in the Lord is that he will renew their strength. They will, in fact, exchange their strength for his. And NIV notes says the Hebrew for this verb is used for a change of clothes. 
Paul tells believers to clothe themselves with Christ, put on Christ. And here Isaiah says when they do, God's people will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And Jesus promises in Revelations 3, 4 that they who do will walk with me. Verses 1 to 7 of chapter 41 are addressed to Babylon and all nations who with their gods challenge the God of Israel. In verse 2, Isaiah speaks of someone who God will stir up from the east, meaning we learn later Cyrus, king of Persia. He will conquer Babylon and allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. In the following verses, God addresses Israel as his servant, whom he has chosen, and tells them repeatedly not to be afraid. does that in verse 10, 13, and 14. Fear not, for I am with you. And God says in verse 15 that he will make them into a threshing sledge, which means they will leave their mark on the world. Threshing sledge is always a symbol of a great victory, For example, in Micah 4.13, it is written, Rise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, and I will give you hooves of browns. The rest of the verses through verse 20 says how God will help his people, how he will restore them, how he will refresh them. And I was going to have us read together verses 41, 18 to 20, but since we all have such different translations, I'm just going to read that bit, but you might want to close your eyes and just envision what God says he will do. And then perhaps in your small groups you could read it again with one another because they're so beautiful. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set pines in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that the people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this that the Holy One of Israel has created it. So these are all part of God's new creation in behalf of his people. And the next verses on into 43 will speak of God's servant who will usher in all this for us. And that will come next time when we will be blessed by the enlightened words of Janice, who can't be with us today but is here in spirit. So in closing with these things in mind, let's celebrate the Lord, borrowing words from the psalmist in 95. Let us pray. Come, let us sing out to the Lord. Let us shout in triumph to the rock of our salvation. Lord, let us come before your face with thanksgiving and cry out to you joyfully in praise. For you, O Lord, are a great God a great king above all gods. In your hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains. The ocean is yours, and you made it. Your hands molded dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker, for you yourself are our God. We are the people of your pasture, 
the sheep of your flock. If only all people could hear your voice today. For you come, you come to judge the world. You judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with your truth.